Before we begin this week's episode, I just wanted to take a moment and thank everyone for the amazing support and positive reaction to the debut episode of Let's Talk About Chef. We were not expecting so many of you to download, listen, and subscribe to the show, and it truly means the world to us. If you're new to the show, welcome. It's great to have you. And if you're coming back for the new episode, it's great to have you back. Please like and subscribe and leave a review on iTunes if you can. It really helps spread the word about us. If you want to reach out to us, you can email us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at letstalkaboutchef. Oh, one more thing. Seeing as this episode is about Marco Pierre White, there is going to be a lot of swearing and a lot of words that some may find offensive. You've been warned. That's enough from me. Let's get into episode two of Let's Talk About Chef. It's said that when Alexander the Great, after fighting endless battles for his entire life, reached the end of the known world, he fell to his knees and began to cry because there was nothing left to conquer. He died a short time later at the age of 32 from malaria. It's said that Eric Blair, better known by his pen name George Orwell, drove himself mad while holed up in a cabin in northern Scotland trying to perfect what would become his masterpiece, 1984. He died a short time after its release, never getting to see how important that book would eventually become. The pursuit of perfection literally killed him. History is littered with tales of great men and women striving every day for that all but impossible dream of making something truly great, achieving a goal that only they can see and having that path end up being their demise. In the culinary world, that goal can be in the form of many different things, but for most, it's the accomplishment of getting a Michelin star. We've all seen the videos of chefs telling their kitchens that the inspectors are awarding with the first, second, or in the rarest of occasion, a third star. The years of toil and constantly, obsessively working to ensure that every plate, every ingredient, every sauce, even the lighting, every single day, every single detail is perfect. It drives chefs mad and in some cases kills them. The phone call you receive from Michelin or cracking open the new Michelin guide and seeing those small printed asterisks next to your restaurant's name is the sum total of a glorious career. You've done it and you celebrate hard. It's said that in 1992, Marco Pierre White received the phone call that told him that he would be receiving his third Michelin star at the age of 32. That with that phone call, he would become the first British chef and the youngest to ever do so launching his celebrity and genius into the stratosphere. He said thanks, hung up the phone, shrugged it off, lit a cigarette, and got back to work. The man who put British food on the map, that came from nothing and nowhere to take the culinary world over, be called the first rock star chef and influenced everyone, from Anthony Bourdain to Gordon Ramsay, along with millions of other cooks around the globe, had achieved everything he had ever worked towards. And he didn't care. Seven years later, at the height of his career, he would publicly shame the Michelin Guide and its inspectors, give his stars back, close his restaurants, and never cook professionally again. I'm Brian Clark, and this episode of Let's Talk About Chef, we're talking about the enfant terrible himself, Marco Pierre White.
Marco was born on December 11, 1961. His father was a chef and had emigrated to Leeds from Italy. Tragedy struck his life at an early age when he was just six, his mother passed away from a brain hemorrhage, leaving his father, who enjoyed gambling, especially betting on horse races and greyhounds, to raise Marco and his three siblings in a council estate a few miles outside of Leeds. Marco's childhood was filled with weekends attending horse and dog racing events, being dragged to them by his superstitious father, who would hope that the day, that day, he would win big. He never did. When Marco was 10, his father sat him down and told him bluntly that he had been diagnosed with lung cancer and that he had been given five months to live. The next weeks would leave a terrified Marco lying awake at night, scared of the morning and the possibility of finding his father had passed away in the night. His dad was scared he would die before Marco could be self-sufficient at the age of 10. And so he began to implement the importance of hard work, keeping cash on hand and always having a job. Marco was still too young to start real work, and as the months passed, the doctor's original diagnosis seemed wrong. Thanks to giving up smoking and drinking, his dad regained some of the health that had so quickly left him, and the cancer went dormant. Instead of retreating back into a happy childhood, though, Marco was working. At the age of 12, he would collect empty milk bottles in the morning, had a newspaper route after school, and he would caddy for rich gentlemen golfers on the weekends. His intense love for hard work had begun. He would always be making money. His father's programming had worked. Work, work, work. A few short years later, at the age of 16, Marco dropped out of Allerton High School and went to go train as a chef at the Hotel George in Harrogate. He hated school and wanted to start working for real. He figured being a chef like his dad was a responsible decision. The St. George was a wake-up call to what the real culinary world was like, and the young Marco relished in it. Everything had the word cunt attached to it. Where's my cunting knife? Stop cunting around. Or even a polite, see you tomorrow, cunt. The food was extremely French, extremely Escoffier. And it was in the kitchen at the George that Marco began to see food as beautiful, as being something more than sustenance, and that he could express himself through it. Thanks to his father's mantra of work, 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 the young cook would stay in the kitchen way past the eight hours that were expected of him, working 12 to 16 hours every single day, only taking a day off if he was forced to because his overtime pay was too much. He was a sponge for knowledge, craved knowledge. If the pastry chef was making lemon glaze, he would be there watching. If the saucier was making hollandaise, he would be there watching. The man whisked together the clarified butter and egg yolks. He wanted to learn everything. One day he was bored and restless, because all the prep had been finished, everything had been cleaned, so he went to have a cup of tea with the porters and help them polish the guests' shoes. He flopped down into an armchair and picked up the first magazine he could reach to read while he waited for the kettle to boil. It was a guide to Britain's best restaurants, and the box tree in Ilkley had been named the best restaurant in England. Being a naive 18-year-old, he picked up the phone and blindly called the restaurant that had a reputation for it being impossible to get a job in, and he got hired. Sometimes being naive is a good thing. The Box Tree was a two-Michelin-starred restaurant in Yorkshire that served two seatings of 50 people each night. It was also the most expensive meal in England. Marco was placed in charge of pastry, and he dived headfirst into it. This was the first time he'd been given command of his own section in a kitchen, all he had to do was get his dish approved by the chef and it would be on the menu that evening. It was almost like creating his own menu. The owners of the box tree had said that they have never had a pastry chef as talented or as hardworking as Marco. And even years after he left the restaurant, the dishes he created there still make appearances on the menu. They'd become classics. 
After 18 months at the box tree, London was beckoning to him. The big city, the food, the cuisine, and especially the new champion of England's gastronomy, Chef Albert Roux at the iconic La Gavroche. He knew he had to be in that kitchen, so he sent a letter to inquire about a position. The questionnaire he got back from the chef was written entirely in French. Marco couldn't speak or read French, so he chucked it in the bin and headed to the south coast by train to apply at another Michelin-starred restaurant as the pastry chef. It was on that journey that he missed his train heading back to Leeds, and so young, broke, and tired, he found himself roaming blindly the streets of London all night, unable to afford a bed, not knowing where to go or what to do until the train to Leeds started again in the morning. As the sun came up over the city, a freezing and lost Marco turned a corner and almost walked through the front window of La Gavroche. He had found it by accident. He looked up at the sign and went around the back to see if anyone was there. He knocked on the kitchen door and the porter pointed him in the direction of the office where he found the chef and odor sitting drinking coffee. He said he wanted a job. Albert Roux took one look at him, dirty and disheveled, and asked where he had worked previously. After hearing the box tree, he told him to be back in three days to start work. And so, in 1981, at just 20 years old, he headed to live and work at the best restaurant in the capital with seven pounds in his pocket and a bag of clothes slung over his shoulder. Marco threw himself into his work under head chef Albert, and with his father's mantra ringing in his head of work, 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 he would spend every waking moment in the kitchen under the tyrant chef. La Gavroche was not a nice place to work, with most cooks wanting to simply put some time in so that they could put the name on their resume and quickly move on with their emotional health still hopefully intact. Marco was different. He had spent his life being made fun of for his name, his slender build, and his single father family, so if this asshole of a chef was going to scream in his face, he didn't really give a shit. Things did come to a head, though, when Albert one day took a soup ladle and began brandishing it in Marco's face, calling him a little bunny. That was the breaking point. Marco had had enough. He walked off, changed out of his whites, and left. Finding himself jobless in the expensive city in London, he quickly found work in a butcher shop, trussing chickens and wrapping steak for customers. But it didn't really please him. And he was now yearning to run his own kitchen, make his own menus, and the opportunity to do just that came quickly. Hey, it's Brian. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about Koval Distillery. Established in 2008, Koval produces organic whiskey liqueurs and specialty spirits in Chicago's first distillery since the mid-1880s. Koval embraces the grain-to-bottle mentality, and each step of the spirit-making process is thoughtfully monitored using local farms to grow all of the grain. Koval has grown to be one of America's leading small-batch independent spirit manufacturers. You can find Koval's amazing whiskey wherever fine spirits are sold, and please be sure to visit them at Koval Distillery. Now, back to the show. The Six Bells was a pub. There was no way around it, and the owner, who knew nothing about kitchens, took one look at the resume handed to him, saw some of the biggest restaurants in Britain written on it, and hired Marco on the spot. The deal was that as the chef, he would be given a budget of 500 pounds a week to cover all of the costs in the kitchen. That included his wage, the food, any cooks he hired, and a dishwasher. 
After working for so many years already in the highest of caliber kitchens England had to offer, and with his insane work ethic still pounding through him, Marco was able to not only purchase all of the food and hire an American line cook to help him out, he was also able to take home 400 pounds a week. The cook he hired was a rotund, ponytailed redhead, whom looked up to Marco like he was already the famous genius he was soon to become. He would follow Marco around to the markets as he studied produce and seafood, and he would carry whatever bundles of food they bought back to the Six Bells to prep them. He had quit attending the famed culinary school Le Cordon Bleu, and had found himself in a mentor, the young, angry Marco. Years later, he would still say that Marco had been his first inspirational leader, his first chef he had seen who was a genius even if he was an evil one. Upon returning to New York after his time with Marco, his restaurants would take over the city for decades until only recently when his action against female cooks and servers in his famous kitchens would bring him crumbling down. His name was Mario Batali. After a few months sweating it out together at the Six Bells, Marco and Mario had had enough of one another. An argument happened, screaming insults at one another, and it resulted in Marco whipping a hot pan of risotto at Mario's chest. The young American walked out of the kitchen, but not before dumping a whole box of kosher salt into a soup that Marco had had on the stove all morning. It wasn't long, though, before the call of fine dining kitchens would also result in Marco leaving the Six Bells. He missed the grandeur of Michelin-starred kitchens, the ingredients, the status, and not dealing with an out-of-touch owner who found the food he made too fancy. And so, despite making more money than he had ever before in his entire life, he left and was hired instantly at the famed Le Tain Claire under Chef Pierre Kaufman. He didn't stay long at Le Tain Claire. The world of cooks who can handle the demands of Michelin-starred kitchens is a small one, especially in 1980s London when there were only three Michelin-starred restaurants in the whole city. Despite the need for this talented breed of cooking robots, the treatment that Marco had received at La Gavroche and now at Le Tain Claire was really starting to get to him, and it was at the age of 23 that he was about to work for the chef who he said gave him the confidence to be the chef that he was destined to be, the soft-spoken and encouraging Oxford chef, Raymond Blanc. The restaurant, and I apologize for my butchering of the name, was called Le Manoir à Quatre Saisons, and it was located about eight miles outside of Oxford. Raymond Blanc was doing something a little bit different. He was changing French classics, changing French food just slightly by lightening up the sauces, adding different ingredients that were more local. And although this doesn't sound revolutionary today, you have to realize that at the time, you did not change French dishes. Marco, for the first time in his career, was being asked to create dishes. Raymond saw the potential in him and would ask him to make things without a recipe, without telling him how. It was the first time he was able to create without a chef changing it slightly at the end to make it their own. A year went by at the manor, and something was really starting to bother Marco. He had never been to France. Never been to Paris, even. Here he had spent his entire adult life cooking the finest of French food, and he had never stepped foot on French soil. So, he devised a plan. He would go to Paris, knock on kitchen doors until he got a job in the city. With his credentials, it shouldn't be too hard. There was this small issue, though, that he couldn't speak the language or understand it at all, but that was not going to stop him. And so, he called his friend who lived above a small restaurant in London and asked if he could sleep there on his way to Dover to catch the ferry to France. And it was also there, above the struggling restaurant Lampwick's, that fate stepped into his life again. He never made it to France. Hey, it's Brian again. 
If you're enjoying today's show and you want to learn more about the amazing life of Marco Pierre White, I highly suggest you pick up a copy of his memoir called The Devil in the Kitchen, published by Orion Books. The Devil in the Kitchen is filled with more crazy stories and tales than I could ever fit into an episode of the podcast. It can be found on orionbooks.co.uk or head to your local bookstore and show your support. And now, back to the show. Lampwick's owner, Alan, needed Marco. And Marco needed money. That evening, he was convinced to cook in the kitchen for a while until the menu could be updated and hopefully the restaurant that was on the brink of bankruptcy could be saved. Two regulars who had come to Lampwick's ate some of Marco's food and instantly offered him to be the head chef at a restaurant they had just purchased. A small place that at the time sold burgers to hungover crowds after the pubs closed. And so at the age of 25, he entered the kitchen at Harvey's, the restaurant that would catapult him to the top of the food world mere months later. Harvey's was where Marco White became Marco Pierre White. Every day he would wake up, smoke a cigarette, chug a coffee, and get to work. The kitchen was too small for a brigade system that he was used to, so he changed it. Everyone helped with everything, and his small staff of cooks quickly became some of the most talented chefs in England. The food became legendary. The constant search for perfection and questioning everything that went onto the plate would leave Marco awake at night, studying produce, studying meat, scribbling dish designs on loose scraps of paper that would litter his office like confetti. The near manic obsessiveness was felt in the dining room. And only a few short months after opening, the Sunday Times food critic wrote Harvey's first glowing review, and suddenly Marco was the hottest chef in London, and Harvey's was the best and hardest to get into restaurant in all of England. Celebrities of every medium would show up. The dining room became a place where socially would gather and drink and dine on the best food in the city. The papers also had a field day, writing about and peppering their pages with photos of the long-haired, angry chef who had so quickly risen to fame. Did I mention angry? To say that working at Harvey's under Marco was an unpleasant experience would be an understatement. All of the pressure to maintain the Michelin stars he had achieved so quickly, the long hours and sleepless nights cracked the chef. Wheels of soft French cheeses would fly through the air, sticking to the walls. Pans would break tiles in the kitchen after being thrown from his hand if an unlucky and overworked cook didn't do something correctly. The anger and very real chance of getting hit in the head with a copper pot would normally break a lot of young cooks, but not this bunch. They knew that they were part of something great, and they stuck it out, putting up with the tirades and temper tantrums, treating it like a rite of passage. One minute, the chef would be commending them on a job well done. The next, he would be an inch from their face, whispering violently about the ways that they cut carrots. And the next, Marco would be upstairs in his office, fucking an attractive customer whose husband would be sitting at their table, waiting for her to return from the bathroom, completely unaware. They were working for a rock star, and the behavior came with the territory. The reason behind Marco's madness? Simple. Fear resulted in perfection, and I quote, In order to achieve my dream, I reckoned that I needed a brigade with army standard discipline, as I had learned from my time at Gavrash. Discipline is born out of fear. When you fear, you question. If you don't fear something, you don't question it the same way. And if you have fear in the kitchen, you won't ever take a shortcut. If you don't fear the boss, you'll take shortcuts. You'll turn up late. My brigade had to feel pain push themselves to the limit, and only then would they know what they were capable of achieving. Unquote. Some of the best chefs in England came through the kitchen at Harvey's, including Curtis Stone, Shannon Bonet, Eric Chavois, 
Heston Blumenthal, and even shouty TV chef Gordon Ramsay, who took his cues for his later angry tirades from his time working for Marco. By 1995, Marco Pierre White was a legend. He owned restaurants all over London, including one with actor Michael Caine, who he considered to be a father figure. He'd become a millionaire several times over. His cookbook, White Heat, had inspired thousands of kids to become chefs. And still, you could find him every night at one of his places behind the stove, pushing the boundaries of what British food could be. December 23rd, 1999, was the day that Marco Pierre White cooked his last meal. He stood behind the stove of his restaurant thinking about the fact that he was going to give his stars back to Michelin. Give the stars back that he had worked so hard for, sacrificed so much for. He was 38 years old and he'd been called what he called a slave to his kitchens for 21 of those years. The food world nearly rioted when news broke out that here, the best chef in England, the best chef of his generation, and the man who was considered food royalty was going to turn his back on the system that he had spent so much time working for. He didn't know it then that night that he was going to keep owning restaurants, that he was going to release books including the astounding memoir The Devil in the Kitchen. He didn't know that he would open hotels around the world, make more money than he could ever possibly have dreamed of. He didn't know that he was going to spend his free time walking through the countryside of England with an $80,000 shotgun and a cigarette dangling from his lip shooting deer and partridge. Or that with the wave of food TV taking over the airwaves, he would become even more of a celebrity on shows like Hell's Kitchen and MasterChef. He didn't know any of that on that night in December, and he didn't care. As he slid the last plate he would ever cook across the pass, all he knew was that his father's voice in his head, the mantra of work, work, work that had been there since he was 10 years old was finally after so many years fading away thanks for listening to this episode of let's talk about chef the episode was written by me brian clark produced and engineered by timothy mcdonald our theme song is cone of light by the almighty defenders if you want to reach out to us you can write to us at let's talk about chef at gmail.com or join our instagram page you can find us at let's talk about chef Once again, if you enjoyed the show, please review it on iTunes and tell your friends. Until next time, I'm your host, Brian Clark.